We're going to continue our series on preparing an on-ramp for God. And this week we're going to talk about how, how the scriptures had designed a way for Christ to come into Jerusalem during his last week of life on earth and how that was an on-ramp for us understanding what he wants to do in our own lives and how he wanted to present himself to his own people. Subtitle of the message is Being and Bringing What He Needs. Being and Bringing What He Needs. Matthew 21, verses 1 through 8. Verse 1, it says, When they had approached Jerusalem and had come to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied there and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Verse 6. The disciples went and did just as Jesus instructed them, and and brought the donkey and the colt, and laid their coats on them. And he sat on the coats. Lord, help us as we study. Five things about which I wish to concentrate on this passage. The the priority to go, then to find, then to untie, then to bring, and then what it means to have Jesus mount. In order to understand this passage best, it would probably be good for you to also look at a parallel passage in Luke. Chapter 19, verses 28 through 35, where it gives the same account but gives it differently. The differences in the Luke passage as compared to the Matthew passage is that the Luke passage only details the foal, not the mother and the foal. And then it also says at the very end of the passage that the disciples actually sat Jesus on the donkey. This passage says, and Jesus sat on the donkey. Now some will say, well, see, this proves that the Bible is inconsistent. No, it proves the Bible is complete. Generally speaking, if you're going to have four accounts of a man's life, considering the fact that no human being can be the complete account of anyone's life, you want to have four accounts that give you a more well-rounded view of the man's life and, and that from different perspectives so that you can understand better what he went through. And so the accounts will be different so that you can have a different idea about what needed to be emphasized by one writer as opposed to another. And then when you put them all together, you say, that's what happened. If you just read one without the other, you won't get an inaccurate view. You'll just get a partial view. And so God has four Gospels in order to help us understand better. Because no one man could ever bring into full view the ministry of Christ. And you you need to understand the context in which Jesus was coming to this moment. It was his last week of life, at least life on earth in a physical ministry. And he was coming to his people to give them his last words for his last week of life and to give them a message through his actions. Uh, Generally speaking, he he was a monarch. And those who were most close to him realized he was the Messiah. The Messiah is a Jewish word for 
their king who would come and save them from all the difficulties and usher in a reign of peace and prosperity unparalleled in human history and would, would administrate a kingdom that would have no end, meaning it would go on forever, as well as have no, no boundaries. The, the increase of the kingdom would just continue to expand. So this is what the Messiah was to do and who he was to be. And, and the disciples figured this out. And the people who were the crowds sort of figured it out, but not to the depth that the disciples had. And the crowds were just mainly in it for what they could get out of it. As proved by the fact that they were saying, Hosanna, save us on Sunday. And by Thursday, crucify him. So they flipped. Public opinion can flip in a minute. Those who love you today will hate you tomorrow. If you don't serve them the way you want, they're going to speak bad about you. So don't trust in what people say about you. Folks want to do stories on our church now. Washington Post. I say, Washington Post can't help me. Can't help me do what God's called me to do. I don't, care. I don't need publicity. I just need to wake up and obey. That's all I need to do every day. If we stay in ignominity for the rest of our existence, happy as long as we help change the city for God. I don't need my name any place. And so Jesus was coming in. And generally kings, they, they would come in with, with a lot of regalia. I mean, pomp and circumstance. And, and, and they would show their might and power because they were the ones who were to provide security for their people. And they wanted to, to, to really display that so the people would put their confidence in their rule. And, and generally, a king would come with a whole entourage in front of them, warriors and on, on steeds, I mean strong mounts with no defect. And then he would come behind them, generally either on a steed, the biggest and strongest, or with a chariot. And he would then be waving and saying hello, and folks would be putting flowers and petals all over, and they'd be chanting things about him, and it would be just a moment for everybody to remember. And, he would be the commander-in-chief as shown that he can lead our armies into battle. And he would display that with his power, his military prowess. Horses were for military. There were, there were things, instruments of war. And Jesus chose to ride in to show his prowess on a donkey. Not very impressive militarily. Why a donkey? Now, let me say, before I explain why a donkey... It's not that Jesus is abandoning horses. He's coming back on a horse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A, a big, big white horse. And uh, he's got something like a sword in his hand or something. And, and, and things he says out of his mouth just really impact people. Some love it, some die. It's not going to be... It's not going to be a happy moment when he returns. It's not that he's against battle for those who want to go against him. It's just that at this point... It was not what he wanted to portray. That he needed to be what Isaiah said, the prince of peace. So he wanted to usher in a reign of understanding to let people know, I'm not here to fight you or anybody else. I'm here to fix the breach between you and God, to bring peace where there's been war. And you have been the militants. You've been fighting against him and all he's been trying to do is help you. I'm coming as a prince of peace to bring peace to a people that don't know nothing about it. Though the people wanted him, will you fight Rome? Will you deliver us from this bondage, this oppression of this horrible nation? Yeah, that's not the issue. I'm coming to help Rome get right as well as you. He had a bigger picture. 
Freedom was his orientation, just not how people thought about it. Different perspective on what freedom would be. So he comes in on a donkey. Now, if you look at Luke 19, you'll see that it says Jesus told him to go get this donkey upon which nobody had ever ridden. I used to ride horses when I was younger. I loved it, loved it. But I'd never, nobody ever put me on a horse that had not been broken. If you've ever ridden a horse that hasn't been broken, you didn't ride him long. You didn't ride him long. He bucked you off in a hurry. Because it's not natural for any animal to put 150 pounds on his back. He's trying to, how can I, what happened? Get, get this off me. Get this off me. If you won't get, I'm going to get him. Boom, boom, boom. You get off in a hurry. This foal had never been ridden. And the, the general expectation for a foal that's never been ridden is that it bucks off whatever gets on it. Which says a lot about who Jesus was. Now, let, let, let me tell you what, what Jesus did on at least two occasions. We don't know how many other times because we don't have the entirety of his life. We have the highlight reel of his life. Those are what the Gospels are. But at the beginning of his ministry, he had a moment with John the Baptist. Now, John the Baptist happened to be his, his cousin at some level. We're not quite sure how they were related, but we do know that both of their mothers, John the Baptist's mama and Jesus', and Jesus mama, were related, Mary and Elizabeth. And Mary had spent three months, the last three months of Elizabeth's pregnancy with Elizabeth. And she was there for the birth of John the Baptist, which was obviously her relative as well. And so they knew one another. Now, they didn't know one another like buddies. They knew one another like a 16-year-old knows a 65-year-old. Because Elizabeth was 65, probably. And that she was well beyond childbearing years. So beyond it that they never expected ever to get pregnant. And... Mary was, we know, a young girl who was engaged. And generally speaking, they're somewhere in their teenage years. So there was a wide gap in, in age, but they had similar interests because their boys were going to be compatriots in ministry. And they knew it. Elizabeth knew, my boy is going to help your boy. We've got to stay in contact. And so probably every time Mary came down for, with her family, Joseph and Jesus, to the feasts, for which they had to come three times a year, Feast of Tabernacles, Feast of Booths, Feast of Passovers, at least three times a year. They would probably hang out. And so John and, and Jesus probably knew one another and played together. They were only six months apart in age. I mean, they were in the same grade. Same grade. Though they lived probably 70, 80 miles apart. But when they saw one another, it was like, ooh, great, great. Now, you know when you're growing up with somebody, you really don't know. I mean, Mama can tell you who he is, but he's just your buddy. And here comes Jesus now to the River Jordan. And John knows him, but John said this, I did not recognize him. Now, that didn't probably mean that he didn't know who he was. That meant he didn't know who he was. Oh, my goodness. When he saw him, he said, behold, the Lamb of God. Ooh, I didn't know. I didn't. You are, you're, and John was his prophet. John was the prophet of the day. And so the Lord began to reveal to him who Christ was when Christ came to the river. Now, why did Jesus come to the river? He didn't need to come like everybody else came. Everybody else came because they needed to be baptized in remission of the sins. John instituted a, 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 a sacro, sacrosanct moment whereby people could actually get their sins forgiven by being washed in the river Jordan. And this is where we get the institution of baptism. He was the guy that kind of paved the way for what we do, even though there have been washings in the Old Testament from from the time God instituted the Old Testament practices and rites. But John had made it a public thing. 
And so Jesus comes to get baptized. And John looks at him and says, wait a minute, I know who you are. Ugh, this, this is backwards. Like, you don't, you, have, you don't need to be baptized. You haven't sinned. You don't need to be baptized. You need to baptize me. You, you not. He said, no, no, no. We need to do everything in righteousness, Jesus said. And what was Jesus saying? He said, I really, you know, it wasn't that he needed to go down to the water. He needed John to commend him as king, to affirm him as Messiah. Why? Because it wasn't proper for any king to print up business cards saying Messiah. You couldn't proclaim yourself, your prophet. Any righteous king who had a righteous rule had his prophet proclaim him to be such. Now, there were other kings that came to power, but that wasn't the way they were supposed to come to power. The prophet was supposed to do it. So here we have an objective source saying who Jesus Christ is to the populace. Lamb of God, behold, make way. And then we have a picture that happened in retrospect where John says, God told me that when he came to me, I would know it because a dove would flow out of heaven and land upon him and it would remain. That would be the sign that I would know it was him. Now, a number of things happened at the River Jordan when Jesus got baptized. It said that, that the father spoke, and when he came up out of the water, he said, Behold, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Now, those who had ears to hear heard that. Those who did not have ears to hear heard thunder. Regardless, everybody had to say, None of that happened when I got baptized. <laughs> When he took me under, none of that happened. No thunder, no words, nothing. This dude's special. So it was a sign to everybody, who is he? And then after the baptism, this dove just came flying. Now, you can teach a bird, a captive bird, like a parrot. Can't teach a parakeet. They just don't have the brain capacity. Just too small, pea-like, real small. But you can teach a parrot to get on your shoulder, and you can train him. He'll stay there. You can move around, walk all over but no wild bird ever uses a human being as his preference of rest. Ever. You ever had a bird just land on you? Not a bird do stuff on you. A bird land on you. Birds just don't land on you. They don't do that. Because number one, they think you're, you might be a predator. You might harm them. might use them as lunch. Secondly, they're concerned that, that you're moving so much. And that brings insecurity to them. The sign for John the Baptist that Jesus was the one was that not only would a wild bird just come and land on him, but he would stay. The only way a bird would stay after, if he would land on you, is if you moved in sync with him. That nothing you did was unexpected to him. And everything that Jesus did was expected by the Father. Jesus said this in John 5, 19, what I do, the only stuff I do is what I see the Father do. That's it. And in John 14, he said, what I say, I've heard the Father say. I don't speak of my own initiative. I only say what I heard him say. So the first confirmation from creation, if you will, that Jesus was exactly who he said he was, was that he did only what he saw the Father do, and he said only what he saw the Father say. So when he moved, God moved. Can anybody say that by you? Would the Holy Spirit be, would, would there, as, is he still flying around you? You get my point? Is he still looking for a stable place to land? And if he were to land, is there anything about your movements that would scare him away? 
Anything about your jitteriness, your, your lack of coordination spiritually that might just make him flap wings and fi- find someplace else to go. Most of us, it's hard to get him to remain because we don't move in sync with him. But when the, we don't know how long the bird remained. But we know this, it was long enough for everybody to say, wow. <laughs> wow, did you see that? The bird came out of the sky, landed on him. He walked up out of the river and kept walking with the bird on him. Dude, that dude's something. I've never seen that. My, you see that? That bird's still on him. Yeah, he's a mile away. The bird still ain't flown away. My goodness. It must be his pet bird. But that wasn't a pet bird. That was a bird that's out of the sky someplace. May somebody say that about you. That the Holy Spirit is such your friend. You are so close and move in sync that everybody has to say, that is amazing. I've never seen anything like that. And here we have the back end, him using creation to confirm how he moves. I had somebody come to me and and talk to me about how difficult the Christian life was. I was witnessing to them and trying to get them to understand they needed to repent and give their heart to Christ. And they say, yeah, but it's hard. I mean, you got to, you can't club, you, 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 can't, you, can't, you can't sleep with women anymore, you can't drink like I want to drink, you can't, it's just hard. I said, well, well, yeah, I guess, I guess it's a little, it's not easy, not easy. In fact, the Christian life really without Christ is impossible to live. It's not just hard, it's impossible, I get that. But can, can I help you understand what hard really is? The hard is knowing that your, your adultery just broke up your family and that your kids are disaffected for the rest of their life and you need a miracle from God just to fix that. You can't fix it. That's hard. Hard is knowing that your embezzlement cost you your business. You might have to spend some time in jail. That's hard. Hard is knowing your selfishness cost you your relationships and friends won't trust you anymore. Hard is knowing that you're lying caused so many people to think that you don't have any credibility, that they don't want to be around you, nor do they want to call you their friend. Hard is living a life of sin and dealing with the consequences. That's hard. Because there's no hope of help other than God just decided to be merciful to you. You can't fix it. Now, living the Christian life, not easy. But I like this version of hard better than yours. I really do. I like it because when I do something wrong, I appeal to my God and he seems to forgive me and help me. In fact, he gives me hope of restoration when I mess up. If I blow it, he says, okay, you need to make some restitution. You need to repent. You need to get it really right. But watch what I'm going to do on your behalf because I believe that I am going to be glorified in your marriage, in your relationships, in your money, in your job, in your career, in your student, in your education. I'm going to be glorified. So I'm going to fix it all for you. I did not come out with a Bible in my hand. When my mother birthed me. You have no idea that from which I've had to overcome. You don't know what God has had to restore to me just to get me at even. How far behind the starting line I had to begin. You have no idea. But when you see me, you think, oh my. He's really far ahead. He's an amazing preacher, the way he does that. Just sit up there on that stage with that bow tie and just talk. That's amazing the way he does that. Just amazing, just amazing. It's just really, really good. I don't think I'm that much at all. I think I'm less than talking to greater than. Believe me, I know my flaws. I know what I'm not. My point is, look at what God does. 
That's my point. Look at what God does. And people can confuse you with being right all the time if you live right. People will think you're amazing if you'll just get up and do the right thing every day. I like my version of hard better than that version of hard. My version of heart allows my children to text me at Campus Harvest, the conference that we've got going on down in North Carolina. They just came from just crazy kids worshiping God on fire, wanting to take the world for Jesus. It is amazing. All these college kids just, it would give you such hope about our, our future because you see it right there. There are a thousand kids worshiping. It was amazing. They, my, three of my kids text me and say, Dad, you got three kids going to ministry. Now, now hold on. Wait, 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 wait. I don't have time for your applause. Don't hold them to that when you see them because they're really excited. But just to get the idea that they're even interested, I like my version of hard. My version of hard produces fruit. Good stuff happens as a result of living this hard Christian life. So take your choice. Which hard do you want? Now, my point is this. I have allowed Jesus to sit on me. Tell me where you want me to go. Take the reins of my life. You, 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 you barely tug right, I'm going hard right. You barely tug left, I'm going hard left. Here, you just nudge me with your heel and my, my ribs. I want you to know I'm going to respond. I didn't buck them off. Because it was hard. Because I had to say no to my flesh. Because I wanted to do something or decided not to. I didn't buck them off. I said, you tell me where I need to go. Guide me to my destiny, please. This is the only way I want to go, to be ridden by you. The only way. This is the beauty of letting Christ get on board, is that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Oh, it's not, it's not that it's easy compared to, to bearing nothing. It's that it's easy compared to bearing sin. And the weight of punishment and guilt that abides on people. And let's face it, all of us get to the point at some, some time in our life where we say, I can't take it anymore. Why? Because this life has gotten too heavy. And when we get there, that is a wonderful opportunity for us and to cast our care upon him because he cares for us. That's what the scriptures say. And so he relieves us. He doesn't take the burden away. He just helps us carry it. When he rides us... It's as if we were made for him to get on top. It's amazing how it feels to let him be the one who guides us. In order to get to this point of understanding what it means for Jesus to, 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 to get, get us to be the, the people upon which he rides into his and our destiny... There, there are five things that happen in this passage. One, Jesus sent some people to go. Two, he sent them to find. Three, he sent them to untie. Four, he sent them to bring. And five, he said, I want to get on and, and, and mount. So it, when you, in order for you to have gotten right with God, somebody had to go to you. Somebody was sent to you. Somebody said, maybe you got right in this church. Somebody said, come to church. 
and I happened to be particularly anointed that day and you heard it as if I'd been in your home and I was reading your mail. That was the Holy Spirit. That's not me. I don't know you. God does. And he's speaking through this little man to help you. That's how much he cares about you. He would use me, who doesn't know you, to talk to you as if I knew you. Somebody has to go. And somebody, somebody went to get you. And you need to listen to this message on two levels. One, on the level of understanding of what it means to be grateful for what God has done and maybe how you need to respond if you have not. And on the level of saying, God, what can I do now to do the same for somebody else? Yes. Somebody went to get you. I got right with God at Indiana University. I was a senior. I was an early senior. I was a, in my second semester junior year as a senior. In my first semester senior year. Uh, and I was walking from one class to another, and a guy just stopped me on the middle of, ca- middle of campus and said, Hey, you a Christian? Now I was a little offended that he didn't even say hello. And I said, oh, sarcastically, it depends on your definition. That was the wrong answer. And he just, for the next 20 minutes, told me the right answer. And I said, no, I'm not that. I said, what, what do I need to do? And he, he, he led me to Jesus, led me to a church, got right with God. It was amazing. But I asked him, because he spoke with a real deep southern drawl. I said, do you go to school here? He said, no, I'm from Mississippi. I said, what, what are you doing here? He said, I came to reach you. I said, you quit school? He said, no, it's my spring break. I said, dude, who goes north on spring break? <laughs> who does that? Who does that? You came on your spring break to minister the gospel on a campus? That, among, amongst all the things he said, I mean, I was convicted by the Holy Spirit. I needed to get right. I was blown away with that. I said, thank you. Somebody came to get me. Jesus sent somebody. He said, there's a colt over there. I want to ride. Go get him. Go. And the word there, opposite, in the city opposite, actually means this. Opposite is a, in, in the Greek, beyond. Beyond you. You always have to minister beyond yourself if you're going to talk to somebody about God. You, you, you can't minister to them where you are. You've got to go beyond yourself in order to really reach him, whether that's physically or whether that's relationally or whether it's in your own soul where you are just worn out and you don't feel like you can do it. Ten days ago, I was coming back from Oregon. Do you know it's really hard to get to Oregon from here? Corvallis, Oregon is hard to get to. I left at like 8 a.m., got there at like 4 p.m., had to fly to San Francisco and then fly to Eugene and then rent a car from Eugene and drive an hour to get to Corvallis. That's not fun. Now, I'm happy to do it, but it wasn't my preferred day. And I was ministering the gospel. Ministered that night at 7 o'clock. Stayed through the meeting till 9 o'clock. Drove back to Eugene that night. Got in bed about 11.30. Took a nap. Got up at 4 in order to get a flight at 6 to fly back to Eugene. To fly, to, excuse me. To drive back to Eugene to get a flight at 6. Got up at 3 to get a, and drive back to Eugene to get a flight at 6. To, drive, to get down to San Francisco and get a flight to San Francisco. You see how confused I am? <laughs> That's how confusing this was. And so by the time I got to San Francisco from Eugene, I was whipped. 
And I was sitting there in my chair thinking, okay, Jesus, I get to sleep for about four hours on this plane, and I'm not even good at that, but I'm so tired, I know I'll sleep. And I was in an exit row, so I had some room, and it was really nice. And I sat down, and as soon as I got comfortable, the guy next to me said, hello, my name is Sam, what's yours? I wasn't, I was saying, God have mercy on me. Don't, I don't want to minister to anybody. My name's Brett. Do you know how long the flight is from San Francisco to here? That's a four and a half hour appointment. Well, the guy got right. Talked to him about his life, opened up, wrote me a note, sent him some books. He said, oh, thank you. My trip was so amazing in Washington. Thank you. You paved the way and you even helped some of my other people who were with me because I talked to them about you. And it was a great note. I let my wife leave very encouraging. I'm glad I did it. But I had to go beyond myself because I did not want to minister to anybody on that plane. Go beyond yourself. This is uncomfortable for you. I know it's going to seem weird. You're just going and picking up a donkey that's not yours. I get that. Do what I say. It's going to help you. and It's going to help others. Somebody came to get you. Go get somebody. Re- 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 return the favor. Secondly, you said you got to find them. <laughs> Go into the city and find. Somebody went to find you. Everything about Luke 15 is all about finding that which is valuable. The father looking for the son as he's coming home, the prodigal. He's looking for him. He says while he was still a long way off, the father was looking. And once he saw him, he ran to him. The shepherd that leaves the 99 to go find the one. The woman who lost the coin in the house invites all her neighbors over and says, help me find this coin. Turned over the house until they found it. Everything about Luke 15 is about looking for the valuable. And God is looking for you. He looked for you. He found you. Now, go find somebody else. Thirdly, untie. You can't bring... You need to be completely untied from the world. You can't serve God well. You can't get to where you need to be with him on top, with him riding you, if you're going to be tied to a post. You have to be untied. And there are some things that you just can't bring into the Christian environment. Immorality is one of them. You just need to stop sleeping around. I don't care how pretty she is. I don't care how much money he's got. I don't care how much you care about one another. Please stop. You want to please God? Stop it. Stop it. And do not consider yourself so right that if you choose to only go to base three, somehow you haven't done anything wrong. Be pure. Don't lower the bar so you can feel better about yourself. Keep it up here. And you keep trying to reach it. Live right. Now, I'm a black man who's talking to you who got married at the age of 25 and had all of my virility intact and chose to make sure that the first time I kissed my wife was at the altar. Chose that. By the grace of God, we have a testimony. My point is, it's possible to live right. Some stuff we just can't bring in. Lying we can't bring in. Cheating, stealing, we can't bring in the kingdom. You... you, you that's just, you have to be untied from the world system. Fourth, Jesus said, bring. And it's, it's, yes, it's about you and Jesus. He's the only one that can get you right. I can't get you right. He's the only one that can. 
forgive you. He's the only one that can restore you. I can guide you to him. But he's the only one who can do it. So it's about you and Jesus. But it's not about you and Jesus only. Because he wants you to be connected to a group of people. Where do we bring people when they get right? We need to bring them to his body. The body of Christ as manifest on the planet is his church. Bring the people to church. Bring them to the small group. Bring them to your men's meeting. Bring them to your women's meeting. Bring them to me. So that we can help them. We can use our experience to support them so that they don't have to reinvent the wheel. They can actually do what, what we have done well and avoid all the things we have done wrong. Discipleship is this. Bring them to the right spot so they can get help. And if we are not the pe- people to which you wish to bring them, I get it. We're not perfect. We have a lot of flaws as a congregation. Though, I must admit, architecturally, we're not a bad house. I mean, we, we build some stuff well. I know how to make this thing go. Do we have everything perfect? Hardly. But we got some good things happening. But we may not be your house. If we are not your house, go find your house and join your house and become a part of that house so that you can build the atmosphere of that house so that people can come in and enjoy it like you came in to enjoy it. Some folks work really, really hard. To provide few distractions so that you can hear God well. How do you think these folk in the worship team know to go from the chorus to the verse? How do you think he knows how to play it that way? How do you think the drummer knows what to do before they get to the place and lead you to saying, oh, they're about to ramp up now. How do you? They practice. They work really hard before they get here to make sure that there are no distractions. Whereby somebody went to the verse, somebody else went to the chorus, and you're sitting there thinking, I, 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 where are they going? I don't know what they're doing. Work really hard. Children's ministry, work really hard to make sure that you don't have to be concerned. Your children are not just being provided for in terms of care and nurture. They're being discipled. Youth ministry, same way. Our parking lot attendants. I don't have time because I'm already late, but obey the parking lot attendant. <laughs> obey them. Obey them. We got a plan. <laughs> we got a plan. Help us with our plan. Don't be mad at them when they tell you go right. Go right. Go right when they tell you go right. <laughs> if we're not your house, I get it. I really do. Find your house. If we are your house, do more than just put your name on the roll or attend on Sunday morning. Become a part of the process of making this an environment where your friends can come and enjoy. And lastly, it says that they put Jesus on the mount. Gosh, I don't have time. I talk too much. That's basically repentance and letting Jesus into somebody's life so that they can now let him be Lord. He directs them where they ought to go. God, help us. We become what we need to become so that we can do what we need to do in the name of Jesus.